Welcome to another episode of the Chit Chat in a Quarter podcast with your host, Irora Agbar. Every now and again, I get the privilege to interview some really amazing guests on the show. I ask them questions about life and leadership, and their responses are always fascinating, filled with gold nuggets. And I would love to share one of these conversations with you. If you do find this useful, consider subscribing to the podcast, sharing this with your friends and your family. But for now, here's the conversation I was referring to. Hope you enjoy it. Today, I am delighted to have an amazing guest on the show. I am looking forward to this conversation. Her name is Haley Lewis, and she is the managing director and founder of Halo Psychology. She has a lot of experience working with organizations in the public and also the private sector and in organizational behavior and management and change control. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Haley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for such a lovely um, introduction. Amazing. Um, <laughs> a word I'd associate with myself. So uh, no, you can't see me, but I am blushing. I'm not very good at taking compliments. I need to get back. Oh, oh no, but I, I really mean that. I, I was thank looking you. through all the, all the things that you've done and just your accomplishments so far. And I'm really impressed with what you're doing and just... I, I'm, we're going to get into this in the conversation anyway, but the um, first question I was going to ask is, how did you come to specialise in psychology? Because I know you had a stink at the BBC mm. working there as well, but what what was it that made you specialise in psychology? It So there was no grand plan at all, Iroro. Um, it, it was completely by accident. So my undergrads, which I finished in 95, which makes me feel really old, um, I actually majored in history and I had dreams of kind of working in a museum or, or kind of archives somewhere. It just didn't happen, I think, for us, for many of us. And I ended up kind of in a series of, of jobs, initially in catering and then in admin. And was was OK. You know, I was in my 20s. I was living the life in London. And a, a very long story cut short. I'd moved into the BBC in a kind of a coordinator role. So the BBC had its own conference centre on Marlebone High Street in London. And I was a conference coordinator and I'd get involved in all sorts of things. And one of those things was supporting um, a leadership team development weekend up in the Lake District. And which was really interesting to me, just observing how a team build was designed and, and facilitated last evening before we all came back home I was sat next to the director the controller of training and development at that time and he asked me it was a very nice dinner and then he asked me oh what do you think of this weekend now I'd had two glasses of red wine and um, so I wouldn't advise this or maybe I would advise this I don't know and I, I kind of told him exactly what I thought I thought Money had been wasted. I couldn't see how relationships had improved, and I couldn't see the out. I couldn't see the outcomes. Anyway, went back into work on Monday, and I got called into my called into my. The food is nice, though. other than that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> taxi, taxi for little Woodland. At that point, this is before I was married. Um, so I went. I got called into my boss's office first thing on Monday morning, and I thought, oh, oh no, this is it. I'm, that's it. I'm fired, and strike me down um she said oh because because my boss at that point she was temporarily looking after the conference center her actual main job was the head of the psychology team and she said oh you know but bob had a chat with me called me um this morning and 
we'd like to offer you an opportunity to train as a psychologist and psychology team and because we think you've got some real potential and he just like he liked the cut of your jib mm. and the way you think and so I'm sure some of your listeners will be stunned by this I don't think it would happen now um, this was back in 98 99 and they said we'd like to sponsor you on a master's in occupational psychology and I was like oh all right then <laughs> so off I went thinking so I went on Ask Jeeves. Do you remember Ask Jeeves? I yeah. went on Ask Jeeves going, what is occupational psychology? Because even though I'd done psychology as a as part of my first degree, my undergrad degree, we hadn't gone into any depth on some of the disciplines. So I was like, what is occupational psychology? Um, and then I was like, all right, I'll give it a go and applied to some different universities and, and got a place at City in London. And the rest, as they say, is history. So it wasn't kind of, I ended up in the profession, not out of a grand plan or because, you know, I'd always loved the world of work psychology. It was by accident, but I've ended up completely and utterly besotted and in love with what I do. Oh, wow. So I'm very lucky. Oh, wow. That, that is so good. And how I found you in LinkedIn is with your sketches, mm-hmm. you... They are so profound. I, I was, it, a lot of people talk about stopping the scroll, basically getting your post uh, so uh, captivating that it causes people to stop and read what you are posting or listen to whatever it is that has been posted. And your sketches definitely did that for me as the many thousands of people who are commenting on your, on your sketches. Mm-hmm. And for me, that really was really like, oh, wow, this is different. And like I say, you are conveying profound truths discussing serious topics and and teaching very very important things in sketch form where what is your personal journey or what was your personal Mm -hmm. journey to getting to that point of saying well actually this is the best way to communicate something so important to adults so I went on a bit of a journey with this myself so I've always been somebody who I like to simplify things. I think life can be complicated enough as it is. And and certainly when I was in leadership roles, when I used to do the good old 360 feedback, Mm -hmm. consistent themes that used to come out from those who kindly kind of took the time to feed back to me was my ability to kind of cut through the noise and and kind of get to the heart of a topic and, and kind of simplify it and make it accessible. So I think that's always been part of my kind of MO, who I am. But it was only when I set up my own business. So I set up my business summer 2016. Um, I had a a little bit of time off and then really got going September 2016. And that was a really humbling experience because there was a bit of an echo chamber. I'd gone from a really powerful, influential role. (laughs) Mm. Evely thought I'll go into my business and, and I'll get loads of work. And I had about three or four months with nothing. And... Yeah, talk about a, a kind of a wake up call. And so I, I was kind of, I was sporadically putting content out there. Um, and I was telling myself the kind of content that I should be putting out there. So I was like, oh, you're a psychologist, you know, you're running a consultancy, you need to be serious. So I was like, blogging. I was like writing blog posts. <laughs> and, um, but not always being consistent. I'd like to do them as and when. And I read this, this book called The Million Dollar Blog. Um, and so that was the first thing that talked about consistency. You have to be consistent so that people can start to be loyal. Right. So I started being consistent. 
and, and numbers started to rise, but nothing was really happening. And then I came across a sketch note by a gentleman called Tanmay Vora. Um, he's on Twitter, he's on LinkedIn, and Tanmay's um, he's an HR director in India, I think. Um, and Tanmay's sketch notes blow my mind. I mean, they're beautiful. They make mine look like they've been done with crayons. Um, his sketch notes are beautiful. He does them on an iPad Pro, and it really this sketch note really spoke to me. And I thought, oh. I like that. And so I started kind of researching on, by this point, it was Google, not Ask Jeeves. Um, so I was like... We'd moved on a bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's, what's, what are sketch notes? Um, and ended up doing this free course, which which no longer exists. It was like an email course where they just set me a few things to do. Um, and so I gave it a go. I have to say my first sketch note will never, ever see the light of day um but I I don't know I just got hooked and I started to put some out and I got really good feedback and then I started to get work so I'd get direct messages on LinkedIn going oh this sketch note really resonated with me and there's this thing going on in my organization could we have a chat and so I was like okay so by this point we're in 2017 and I was still telling myself this absolute nonsense of you're a psychologist, you have to be serious. And so I was still kind of plowing the furrow of I've got to put written content out and it has to be serious and research based and blah, 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 and not doing as much on the sketch notes. And there kind of came a a tipping point. Um, One of my sketch notes went viral and I thought, you know what, I've got to give people what they're people clearly want this stuff. Who am I to kind of ignore that? That's kind of arrogant. Who am I to ignore Mm. that? And it's not that my blog posts weren't kind of getting traction, but nothing like sketch notes. And so, yeah, and so the rest is is history. And now I'm, you know, uh, there'll be one a week. We've got Sketch Note Monday, as you'll know, on LinkedIn. Um, There'll be one coming out later on today. And so, yeah, and I love it. And I actually find, for me, it doesn't just help others it helps me it helps me embed my learning and who doesn't love a bit of coloring in um really absorbing um that's what I do them by hand I did put a poll out on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram about oh should I should I go from hand drawing to to kind of uh, using a device Um, and the overwhelming response was stick with hand Hand. actually yeah that kind of works for me and I think there's something I think people like the simplicity of that and the fact they're not perfect and yeah so so kind of a bit bit of a ramble but hopefully that gives you a sense of learning I've been on with sketch notes no that's perfect because I mean like I say I saw them and it's it's interesting because a lot of us are visual in terms of how we learn we we like to see things to I mean some people can read things easily and understand it for me I, I can I, I'll read things but I like to see it so that really caught my attention but it's int- what you said it, it, I find that really interesting as well because um you felt you had to write blog post and <laughs> present this formal appearance and this serious look but what was really resonating and working with the people you were trying to help ultimately is the sketch notes and I mean you say they're not brilliant I think they're amazing <laughs> they're, they're absolutely amazing and there's uh, there is authenticity to it in terms of the fact that you've even 
drawn them yourself. I think it's really as opposed to using a sort of software. So I really like that side of it. But what is it about our psychology or in our psyche that causes us to default to what we think should be normal and not really explore, go with that creative or where, where really the creativity takes us to? So, oh, that's like a PhD in itself. <laughs> so, I think there's, I think there's a number of, I think there's a number of things that come into play. I think there's, I think there's societal norms. I think there's kind of cultural norms. I think there's professional expectations. And so, you know, growing up as a as a working class girl from South London, it was, you know, it was ingrained into me, you know, to work hard, do the right thing, be serious. I I went to a grammar school. Don't judge me for that. Um, but Not at all. My education, because uh, education was the way out for me. My mum and yeah. dad was really clear about that. Um, but the grammar school I went to very serious. It was all about kind of serious professions and um, the written word. And and so from a very early age, that's kind of in, I think ingrained into many of us in certain societies and and, and cultural backgrounds. Mm. You lay on top of that fashion of psychology, which is very much of that is and rightly so is based on kind of or should be based on evidence our practice should be based on kind of evidence-based research and a lot of that research is is written and in journal articles and so you bring all that together and no wonder um so many of us feel that we have to behave in certain ways you know there's these expectations and pressure but the breakthrough for me wasn't just about people wanting more of these sketch notes the the big thing for me is I get really frustrated with research articles mm-hmm. now I read them as standard I read them because I'm a lecturer um I read them because I'm a I'm a doctoral candidate you know and I'm a bit of a geek I read them even if I wasn't those things I'd, I'd read them yeah. I don't find them easy mm. and I'm you know, I, I've been doing this a long time and, and I struggle and, you know, sometimes I read a journal article going, I don't even understand what that means. And I have to kind of look stuff up or, or I'll read the same sentence like 10 times. And, and I'm like, if I'm struggling with this, how the hell would the lay public uh-huh. cope with this? But then I think there's a missed opportunity because a lot of the research I read about is so valuable yeah. for my audience. It's so valuable for the managers yeah and leaders that I work with, but they'll never find out about it. Yes. Enter stage left, Hayley. Um, so, and not just me, you know, there were a lot of other psychologists out there doing doing some great work in terms of being translators for what can be really kind of heavy, dense, inaccessible research, but bring it into the, the kind of the public eye so that they can use it and benefit from it and, and be even better mm. than, than they are already. Um, and so, yeah, so to answer your original question, I think there's a whole hodgepodge of stuff mm. that forces us or, or tells us that we need to conform. Mm. I think a way out of that and to kind of spark your creativity is is about finding what matters to you. What right. are your values? All right. No, that's good. That's really good. No, thanks for that. And when you, in your response, I, I, I laughed, I chuckled a bit because you, you mentioned <laughs> you reading a lot of journal articles or just research papers and struggling mm. to understand it. And I feel mm. the same way. I mean, growing up, my, my parents were always like, education is the way out. You need to, you need mm. to study. So um, I did a, a master's degree in science and then went on to do a master's degree in theology. And there was one of the re- articles I had to review and I read it. No kidding. 
20 times. And it was only, <laughs> <laughs> and it was only three pages, yeah. 20 times. And I couldn't understand what the theologian was trying to put across. Mm. So, and I said to my wife, I said, please, babe, do you mind just reading this? I think I'm, I'm being stupid here. I can't understand mm. what he's saying. And she read it and she's like, oh, you know, me neither. I think later on, like I had asked a colleague of mine and said, look, I'm really struggling here. And what they were trying to communicate was so straightforward or should have been so straightforward mm. and basic. But the language and just the formality, mm. it just threw me off. And I, 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 and this is me. I, I love, like you, love, love to read, love to research. I could read a, a theology uh, book just as a novel, you know, so, yeah. and I still struggle with some of the language. So you're right in, in, in that, that sometimes we, we default to, to these things, maybe because we're trying to prove a point, I, I don't know, to, to show mm -hmm. how intellectual we are. Well, thank you for that, that encouragement in terms of breaking away from, from that norm. And again, one of the things that, again, I just love about your work is just the creativity. You're, uh, we might, let's touch on this a little bit. I think you, you strike me to be someone who's very creative. I look at your page art on, on LinkedIn, and I'm just going to describe this so that the listeners can at least get a, a visual of, of what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about here. So your banner has a, it's a green banner, and there are four light bulbs face down and the lights are not on, and there is one light bulb faced upwards with the light on. Can I ask, what is the common light bulb that a lot of managers, leaders, and just people in general have switched off from your experience? So my experience and the, the, many, the many managers and leaders I've worked with over the past 20 years or so, I think the common light bulb is that moment when they get the part that they play or that they're playing in a relationship or situation. I think it's very easy. If you, if for example, you have in apostrophes a difficult number of staff, mm -hmm. um, this is often one of the things that's presented to me by coaching clients or on courses. I've got a difficult member of staff. Mm -hmm. And there's so much research that that shows one of the main there's about six factors that impact someone's performance and motivation in the workplace and number one is the relationship with the manager and so the question I, I tend to ask is what part are you playing in this I'm often met with stunned silence sometimes a little bit of a resentful look mm -hmm. there you make me think and how dare you make me think about myself but but actually when we dig into it every relationship Every situation is a 50-50 thing. Mm -hmm. And just as the other person or persons are playing their part and contributing to what's going on, so are you. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, that's that's the light bulb I desire to switch on in the managers and leaders that, that I work with. And, and when I help them have that ping moment, that light bulb moment, I know that their little bit of the world is going to be a better place as a result. Mm -hmm. That's good, I think. I can't remember what article I was reading, but it, it kind of highlights mm -hmm. what you just said that about 80%, I think it was in the 80% range, 70 to 80% range of people leave their current employment, not because of the company, but because of the actual people that they work under, yeah. whether it's the managers or, or the leaders. So what, what sort of change now should we as leaders or managers be making to ensure our workspaces uh, places where people could be productive because we spend quite a lot of our living and awake life at work what do we need to do to make that environment more productive for not just ourselves but for the teams and people we walk alongside 
And this could even apply yeah, in the family as well, because again, even though it's not an organization, it's still there's still people involved and, and, and doing stuff. So what would you say to that? Yeah. Um, and it's funny you say that because that that comes up with some of my particularly my coaching clients where they use some of the techniques, not just with with colleagues, but with family members. Um, but yeah, so, so, the, so the things that can make a difference. So I, as, as you'll know from my last sketch note, I only recently got round to reading Amy Edmondson's book, The Fearless Organisation. So many of your listeners will know, but some might not. So for those that don't, so Amy is the architect. She's the originator of the, the concept of psychological safety, which lots of us will have heard about. And, and it's the psychological safety is this notion of feeling able to try stuff out, take risks, without fear of punishment or ridicule if it doesn't quite work out mm-hmm. so be trying out a new process that be asking a question at a team meeting and so leaders and managers play a big part in in kind of creating an environment a place whether that's virtual or in real life a psychologically safe space and so there's ways that they can do that first of all it's about role modeling mm-hmm. um you know, we underestimate the power of, of of role modeling. We only have to watch some of David Attenborough's programs. You know, you see the girls and the chimps and how they mimic each other, particularly when they're younger. We're no different as as humans in the workplace. We kind of observe what is and isn't acceptable. And so leaders role modeling, um, asking dumb questions or how they respond when something doesn't quite work out, asking for feedback on their leadership style all those things can start to kind of set the the tone and the environment um, where people feel safe to also do that them, themselves. Um, so one of the things I, I, anyone who comes on any of my management or leadership kind of classes, one of the, the big things I talk about is the power of proactively asking for feedback. There was some research from Ross Business School at the University of Michigan a few years ago, and they looked at about 465 teams, leadership teams in the US and Belgium, couldn't get two more different cultures. But what they consistently found is those chief executives in those leadership teams who proactively asked for feedback on their leadership style, what it was like to work with them, consistently had better levels of performance. And so I always kind of encourage leaders and managers not only just to role model how to respond to failure, how to ask kind of vulnerable questions. But I also suggest that they don't just wait for the corporate HR machine and the formal 360. There's nothing to stop you every now and again, just putting something out there. Um, So asking your team or in one-to-ones, asking your peers, you know, what's it like to work with me? You know, I do well, what do I do less well? And is there anything I'm not doing that you think I should start doing? It's something that I used to do. Um, when I was in a head of service while in local government, I didn't just wait for the HR machine, mm-hmm. just myself. And then because I was role modeling how to take that feedback, particularly the tough stuff, that stuff that you think you've hidden, but but it, people have noticed it. Right. Um, my managers who reported into me started to do it because they were like, oh, okay, there's nothing to be frightened of here. And then it got to the point actually where all staff, even if they weren't managers, all staff across all my teams did it. And we created a feedback culture mm. where it just became a natural part of conversation uh, to ask, but also to give 
um, feedback and for it to be taken in the spirit with which it was intended. Uh, that's really good. Let me stick with this idea of just workplace relationship mm. and just building that up. How in the work setting then do we as leaders or managers maintain a strong relationship but then still have those very difficult conversations because those conversations can be really hard sometimes to have Mm -hmm. where you Mm -hmm. maybe because of poor performance or there's just things that needs to be addressed because it's not in line with the culture you're trying to develop or maintain in that organization how does a a leader do that engage in those sort of conversations without breaking the relationship so I think first and foremost, it's about recognising that each each individual that reports into you is unique, you know, is a unique person. So don't fall into the trap of one size fits all uh-huh. um, approaches. And it might feel like hard work, but actually it saves time and heartache in the long run. I actually have a download on my website, a free download, which is a the support challenge framework. And it's one that I teach Uh, managers on some of my programs about having a one-to-one conversation with each member of staff on the best way to support them but also the best way to challenge them either you know on a piece of work they've done or maybe a way that they've behaved but how to do that in a way that they hear the message and don't get defensive and because I know not everybody can afford to, to kind of work with me, that's that's why I've kind of created a step-by-step guide um, for, for managers to download and use. And what I always say and what I say in the guide is it should be a two-way discussion because just as you're trying to develop a bit of a, a roadmap for working with this person in front of you, they need to know the roadmap for working with you because you need support as well as a manager. Yes. And sometimes challenge you. You need to know how to do that in a way that's mm-hmm. safe and in a way where they're not going to be penalised by you. And so it should be a two-way conversation. And it should be a conversation that isn't just a one because people's circumstances can change, particularly behind the scenes at home. And if you're not aware of that, we can make all sorts of assumptions about why somebody is behaving in a certain way. So maybe they've become less engaged, maybe their motivation has dropped, or they're just struggling to do this specific project or piece of work. And it's really easy for us to make assumptions about why that is. We we kind of, lazy management is, is kind of, oh, it's just them, you know, they're just not very good, they're rubbish. And actually, when we take the time to put the effort in and find out what's going on for a person, and find out who they are, and what makes them tick, that can make the real difference, but it does require effort. But you're absolutely right. What's always interesting to me when I teach managers the support challenge framework is how many of them say to me, I've never I've never thought about this stuff. I've never been asked how should I be challenged in a way that's constructive? What does constructive challenge mean to me? I've never thought about that. I've never been asked. And I think that gets to the heart of why there can be so much unhappiness and conflict in the workplace. That's really good. You mentioned that you would be proactive and not wait for HR to actually initiate those, these conversations. You were actually more proactive with it. Mm-hmm. Do you find that from uh, when it comes to men and women as leaders, uh, women, women tend to be more intuitive with these sort of things, more able to express and show emotions and more able to engage with people on that sort of emotional level, especially in a professional capacity than mm-hmm. men. 
I tend to see a difference, but I don't know. It would be interesting to to hear what your what your experience has been. So there are, there is research that suggests that, um, and this is something that uh, Thomas Chamorro Pramuzic goes into in huge depth in his excellent book. Um, why do so many incompetent men become leaders? Mm-hmm. Now, for your male listeners, don't get back in your seat. Don't take umbrage because actually, the book the book looks at it's a it's a deliberately provocative title mm-hmm. which looks at how we recruit and select into leadership positions, mm-hmm. and we tend to recruit and select based on things like IQ and the impression that somebody gives so it's, there's the whole impression management piece and there's there's things that we place stock on when we're recruiting and selecting into leadership roles and particularly in the capitalist world although not exclusively the capitalist world mm-hmm. um, we tend to place stock on what we what we call the kind of in inverted commas the tough stuff mm-hmm. so the IQ and the financial acumen and you know all that stuff, and we we recognise it as important, but but it almost comes lower down the list. Is is the the stuff that you and I might call emotional intelligence? Mm-hmm. And what many studies show is is that yes, women tend to exhibit high levels of emotional intelligence, particularly aspects around empathy. But there's a price to pay for that. Mm-hmm. So here is where we fall into what we call the double bind for women and particularly women leaders where you are damned if you do and damned if Mm -hmm. you don't so what do I mean that it means that if you demonstrate stereotypically there's research that shows if as a female leader you demonstrate stereotypically feminine characteristics so this softer stuff you know the the empathy the compassion you are penalized in some way you're seen as perhaps not an effective Mm -hmm. leader a soft you might actually be overlooked for that next roll mm-hmm. up actually men get penalized for that as well but then conversely if women don't conform to stereotypically feminine characteristics they also get punished because they're going against society's expectations and norms they're it's, it's when we hear terms like forgive my language but it's when we hear terms like ball you know she's a ball breaker mm-hmm. and so so both men and women as some of the research shows get penalized for demonstrating what we call stereotypically feminine characteristics of empathy and compassion but yet we know it's that stuff that can make a difference which is why I've become so interested in servant leadership and it's been great to see more more empirical research coming out over the last few years which demonstrates servant a servant leadership approach can have a positive effect on the bottom line, can have a positive effect on overall performance, but more importantly and fundamentally can have and does have a massive effect on a positive effect on people's um, levels of engagement, motivation and creativity. I was listening to a TED talk, I think it was delivered four or five years ago, I forget the name of the presenter now, but he was touching on a similar issue saying how men tend to overestimate our ability going into especially Mm. an interview and we we talk things up ladies on the other side tend to and i appreciate this is a generalization but by and large (laughs) it's it's correct you know in in proportions uh then ladies on the other hand tend to undervalue or undersell themselves and what then happens or tends to happen a lot of times and you've just mentioned is men get promoted to position of real influence and authority mm. 
purely based on charisma and the fact that they've overestimated as opposed mm. to true leadership qualities and values. Now, I've got nieces, you know, who want to grow up to, to be leaders and want to, to serve in different capacities. What sort of things should young girls and young ladies be aware of? Where, where's that balance between, mm. okay, I still need to be true to who I am. I still need to be authentic. But at the same time, I still need to get across to people and be taken seriously. So where, where's that sweet spot in a sense for a lady who's wanting to really progress in leadership and in her career to where, where does she draw the line yeah so I think first and foremost particularly for those starting out think about who your roles are so it can be really powerful to think about who do I think gets the balance right are there are there kind of female leaders that I am aware of that I think manage to walk that tightrope mm-hmm. as well as can be done by any human because uh, as i said previously there's a real power in role models we underestimate that we know for example role models have a massive impact on people who are black or asian or from other ethnic minorities deciding to go into and feeling able to go into leadership positions role models are a massive part of that and I think it's the same for women as well. So, yeah, so think about are there, are there women who navigate that and then learn all you can about them, read about them if, if, you, if you're not in their space, if there's somebody famous, for example. I think start as early as possible in proactively asking for fit. I'm going to be like a stuck record on this one. <laughs> but I'm back in terms of are you getting the balance right? Are you getting the balance right in terms of... I hate the terminology, but it's the terminology that most people are familiar with. But are you getting the balance right of the soft stuff and the hard stuff? Ask and ask that early on. We only really learn by finding out the unknown. It's that it's the sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Uh And that includes about ourselves. So ask people about the impact you're having. What I would say with that though is be careful who you ask. Uh Because some people, because of their own kind of experiences that might shape how they feed back to you and what they feed back to you on Mm -hmm. i'll give you an example i'll give you a personal example of that so i had during my career um, i was very lucky in some instances i had some great bosses one boss it's obvious to me now that they were sexist and told me that because i've always been ambitious um and there was myself and a male peer both ambitious what was really interesting to me is our boss said to me you need to tone down your ambition because you come across as a bit of a shark always really stuck with me like you know centuries later that's still stuck because that's not who I am Mm. very different feedback was given to my male peer which is you need to push harder you need to kind of fight for that role and and it was only because we spoke to each other that we realised we'd been given very different steers. And so this is what I mean by be careful who you ask for. Think about where they're coming from, because that might colour some of the feedback that you're given as a woman. And hence can also lead you down the wrong path, but or can also lead you to feeling like you're failing, like an imposter. Mm. So, yeah, so that's why... One of my particular areas of interest is is kind of in 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 women's experience 
um, in the workplace and in particular as leaders. That's good. And I, I think that's valuable work that you're doing because I honestly believe that uh, an organization can't be healthy if the leadership is one dimensional, if it's just mm. all male. I think that mm. there's definitely value in having uh, a diversity in, in leadership. Mm. And uh, a company, I remember one company I worked for recently, it was very refreshing to see because I, I came into the company and I could see straight away in the leadership that there were there was diversity not just in mm. cultural backgrounds but just even gender mm. and it was so refreshing to see so much so I had to say to the one of the directors and like look this is really good because I, I, I'd worked in the NHS for a while and you don't necessarily see that kind of diversity in, in leadership so mm. I, I think there's there's real value there so thank you for the work that you're doing mm. just gonna switch gears for a bit in the past 12 months and just ask with regards to just your experience from the past 12 months and just this pandemic that we've been in what has surprised you the most about yourself what what have you learned in the past 12 months that really like oh wow I didn't realize I had that sort of thinking or mindset and mm. then with the teams and companies and organizations you worked with, what was a surprise for you there as well? But let's start with, with you personally. What, what surprised you the most? So the thing that surprised me the most, and I've talked about this with some of my friends, I, so I'm 47 in a couple of weeks. Stop it, you look 27. Oh, behave yourself. <laughs> um, Trust me, everyone, for everyone listening, she does look 27. I'll be a guest on your podcast again. Um, um, But yeah, I'm 47 in a couple of weeks and lots of water, good jeans and a good moisturiser. What can I say? (laughs) But I've got to the grand old age of of kind of 47 telling myself that, and I've done all the psychometrics and blah, 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 telling myself that I'm an extrovert. Mm -hmm. What people have said about me, you know, I do enjoy... I do enjoy talking, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not averse to kind of big group stuff, and and I get a real energy from from kind of working with people. But I actually think I'm more of an introvert. I've actually really enjoyed being in my being on my own and having time to think and read. And so so kind of I've come to this realization that I'm probably much more introverted than I ever gave myself credit for if my best friend was listening to this she'd laugh and say I told you all along Um, but I think we have to come to this realization ourselves and so well I think I've really struggled I don't know about you but I've really struggled with this third lockdown in the UK Mm -hmm. the first was kind of okay um but I've really I've I've really struggled but broadly I've I've enjoyed not having to travel up and down with the country and the length and breadth of the country. Mm. Um, but I am also conscious there's an element of privilege. Mm. Um, that not everybody's in a privileged position where they're earning money, where they have a safe place. Mm. I get that. Um, but yeah, I'm a big old introvert. Iroro. Oh, wow. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> with the organisations or teams you work with? So the thing that has both surprised and delighted me is this it's that light bulb again, Mm. is the realisation that it's okay to be human. Mm. It's okay to have a sense of humour. I think one of the big breakthroughs, one of the big light bulbs, is people have become a lot more forgiving when things go wrong because we've had to, you know, technology falls over, your cat makes a guest appearance on your Zoom meeting. (laughs) 
Um, I think Adam Grant, Professor Adam Grant, put it beautifully last year when he 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 wrote a little post saying we're all BBC Dad now. Do you remember? Yeah, that? I remember dashing into the I room, know. dragging the child. I know. I know. Um, and, and I think that gets to the heart of one of the things that I found is this recognition and, and this acceptance that we're all BBC Dad, all Mum. <laughs> Um, um, now and and that's been a wonderful thing to see and and I, I was having a conversation with friends who are also psychologists I promise you our friends who aren't psychologists, <laughs> but friends who, who happen to be psychologists as well and we've all been saying we hope that when we come out of the pandemic and start to go back into whatever normal is that one of the things that's maintained is this humanness mm. I don't think we've seen it to the extent in managers and leaders in the way that we have now. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. And that was actually priming the next question I wanted to ask is, as we kind of, because one day, hopefully, hopefully soon, we'll come out of this lockdown. And and like you, I've the first few lockdowns were okay for me. Now it's starting to, oh my God, I can't even, we've moved homes recently. We can't even buy a bed, you know, because everywhere is shut, shut down and you can't try anything yeah. out. So it's just a bit more difficult this time around. So I'm not enjoying it as much. But um, w- one of the things I was thinking of is as we transition out sometime out of lockdown, what should we now be preparing? And how should we be pre- preparing rather in this moment to get people back into the buildings if people would ever come into buildings in the same you know, uh, proportions before lockdown? How do we manage and help our teams to thrive coming back. What do we need to do? As you say, looking at our involvement first, mm-hmm. what, what are the things we should be taking stock of now and preparing ourselves in readiness for yeah. what the new normal could look like? Well, I think for, for anybody in a leadership and management role, I think a, a fundamental question to ask before before you start getting people to come physically back, unless they're already unconscious, some, many of your listeners particularly those who work in the NHS, have to work in a building because mm-hmm. that's the nature of, of kind of the, the medical and nursing profession. But I think there's a fundamental question to ask around what does work mean to us here? Because there's that beautiful phrase, isn't there? You know, work is something you do, not a building you go to. Yeah. There's questions for, for leadership and management teams to, to be reflecting on. I think in terms of working with their teams, And I think this is regardless of whatever sector you're in, whatever the kind of work you do. I think there will be a need to have a bit of closure. Mm -hmm. What's happened? I think for some people, there'll be an element of trauma on the back of the pandemic. Some people will have lost loved ones either through COVID or knock-on effects of some of the decisions that have been made. Mm -hmm. Some people might have lost jobs. Team members might have moved on as a result. And so I think there's something about not just expecting day one or whatever, you know, whatever day, whenever day one is, just everybody comes in and cracks on. I think some time and space needs to be given to acknowledging what has been and almost like that grieving process that then enables us to move on into whatever new looks like. Mm-hmm. Because there's a reason why we have things like funerals and, and wakes because it allows us to process what's happened and it allows us to start to, to move on and get a sense of renewal and hope. And I think it's no different in relation to organisations and the world of work. 
mm. in what's been happening with the pandemic. Mm, that's good. Just want to touch on a couple of your sketches. There's a sketch you did on managing energy, and mm. you spoke about the four different energies that we need to manage. Can we just speak briefly on, on, on these things? So the physical energy. Now, as you said, there's some people who are working from home mm. and those who are still going on site to you know their respective workplaces. And I think for either group, it's still challenging. I, I think initially when people thought, well, working from home would be a doddle and a breeze, uh, people <laughs> quickly realized that it's actually, it actually can be more stressful and more demanding. So... On either uh, or for either of these groups, how a couple of things that we could do to manage our physical energy. What would you say to that? So there's a, yeah, there's a couple of tips, and these are things that have worked for for many of my my clients over the last year. So the first is get some fresh air, even if it's for five minutes or ten minutes. You know, there's there's research even pre pandemic, but there's research that's come off the back of the pandemic that shows the power of spending a bit of time in nature. Um, from a health perspective, we know it can reduce the cortisol levels in our body, which is the stress hormone that can kind of lower our heart rate. And so if you have a garden, it could be standing outside in the garden, uh-huh. smelling the flowers. Oh, I sound hippie, don't I? Um, if, you don't, if you're like me and you live in, a, in somewhere without a garden, maybe going to a local park, a walk around the local park. But, but trying to get some form of fresh air um, and and connection with nature can make it make a difference and help us help us kind of cope. The thing is, um, and I talked to, I've talked about this both on LinkedIn and Instagram, the power of little and often. I think right. for so many of the the people that I'm working with, they've been feeling hugely overwhelmed particularly in the UK in lockdown one where it was all so unknown and everything was coming at us at the same time so when you're trying to to kind of particularly you know most of my clients are public sector so local government NHS and blue light services like the police and fire and when you are trying to basically when you're running a 24-hour service you're trying to keep your teams going you're trying to keep yourself going you're dealing with the unknown. When you lay on top of that, trying to do all the things that we're meant to do, like an hour exercise a day and uh, meditation in the morning and get eight hours sleep, that can start to feel really overwhelming. And so I talk to my clients about this concept of little and often. Reduce the overwhelm. If there's one part of your of your life that's in your control the way you can reduce the overwhelm it's that stuff oh. and so rather than oh, I've, I've got to try and find an hour in my diary to do some exercise because i have to do some exercise why not break it down into five or ten minute chunks oh. beating yourself up because i'm not reading enough um and i, I want to be a better person and read you know well blimey you've just worked a 14 hour shift right yeah. <laughs> be compassionate to yourself so so another thing could be, why not listen to a podcast or an audio book mm. as part of your, if you are going to an actual workplace, you could do, you, you could do, kind of kill two birds with one stone, if you like. Mm. So idea of little and often. And so, yeah, so a few of my clients, I had one who very senior well in local government was absolutely on the verge of burnout and was putting this additional pressure on themselves. And so we created a bit of a menu to some extent based on the manager your energy, not your time. Uh-huh. Um, and Emma's work as well on self-compassion but where she'd wake up and rather than check her email first which is what she'd been doing she would do five minutes stretching uh-huh. the garden 
this is back when it was summer, um, and have a nice cup of coffee. Then she'd check her email. Then about mid-morning, she might do two-minute or five-minute meditation using something like the Calm app. Then, you know, early afternoon, um, go for a walk around the garden, play with the dog. Then, you know, late afternoon, maybe a bit more stretching or a 10-minute hit workout on YouTube. So she told me that it made such a difference to her um, about how we can be smart about the little and often yeah. concept. And when we when we take that approach, it not only does it help our mental and physical health, it can it's just one less thing that feels overwhelming. It's, it's one less thing that's just this inordinate to do, thing on our to do list. Yeah. Um, like so, yeah, those are the those are the couple of things that I suggest. That's really good. And what I'll do, I know you, you touched on emotional as well and spiritual, but I'm going to put a link to your website on in the show notes as well so people can refer and go back and read through that. But and one of the other challenges, and we were speaking about this before we hit record, was um, the just the mental health uh, issues that will come as a result of the pandemic that we've been in, whether it's people going through personal loss or you know, losing their jobs. And we already were in a situation where mental health was a challenge anyway. Mm. And then add on top of that pandemic and everything else that people are going through. Uh, what, what things, what two things would you suggest for us to do now to begin to strengthen our mental health? Mm. So I'm a big fan and I would be as a psychologist. I'm a big fan of, of kind of talking out, so talking therapy. Mm-hmm. I think there's a real power in externalizing that stuff mm-hmm. for some people then just not comfortable talking to another human whether it's a family member or friend or or, or a kind of a, a therapist and so if you're if you're not comfortable talking about how you're feeling with somebody else why not write it down it's private to you so we know that a reflective journal where you just do free writing can be as powerful as talking stuff through. But the same thing applies for both of those in that you are getting everything out of your head, you're externalising it. And when we externalise something, we can then look at it a little bit more objectively and and start to make sense of it. And so a couple of my my clients have been using journaling in between sessions as a way to cope with anxiety, and make sense of, of stuff that's, that's that's going on for them because my job is to get them to a point where they're self-sufficient uh-huh. in processing this stuff so they don't want to work with me. I don't want people to work with me forever because I see that as a failure on my part. Oh, wow. That's really good. And so, um, yeah, giving people tools like, um, as I say, reflective journaling, helping people feel more confident about talking about how they're really feeling, but giving them the kind of the tools and the language to, to do that. I think are really important things to help people process what's happened mm-hmm. in the wake of the pandemic. I think in ex- I think there will be some extreme circumstances though where proper help will be needed. Not mm-hmm. not getting mm-hmm. help with me, but so for example, I think that I think we're going to see some people if they're not already experiencing it may well experience kind of post traumatic stress disorder. So I'm already hearing stories of some NHS staff exhibiting symptoms of PTSD. Yeah. And so proper help is needed there, such as with a clinical psychologist, which I'm not, I'm an occupational. So getting some some help from a clinical psychologist. And I know these are things that my governing body, so the British Psychological Society, are looking at. There's a number of task forces that are looking at developing toolkits and signposting for where people can go to. Um, and so I'd encourage people to to 
kind of sign up for the BPS website or follow the British Psychological Society on, on Twitter because there's some really useful stuff that, that's coming out from the work of the BPS in relation to the pandemic. That's good. Thank you so much. I, again, I'll put references to that in the notes so that people can, can have access to it. Um, no, this has been so good. Um, last question I'd want to ask you is thinking through before March of 2020 and where a lot of people had or a significant amount of people had more time on their hands to think and process. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, a lot of us were going just non-stop. I mean, for some people that carried on through the pandemic as well. We just didn't have a moment to to stop, to really think things through. We're just, you know, mm -hmm. it was a relentless pace that we were all going at. How did you manage with your busy schedule to think yourself clear to really think things through because for me I realized that was one of the things I was I wasn't thinking deep enough and the pandemic gave me a, a moment to slow down and pause but again I realized and recognize we're not going to be in this hibernation forever how do we develop the ability to think clearly even when life is at its normal pace yeah so there's a there's a couple of things so first I've just always been a super organized person uh you spoke to anybody that knows me really well that yeah they'd roll their eyes probably as well <laughs> but, um so yeah super organized I plan my week out in advance and I think about what are the most important things to achieve which includes doing that thinking time I can't do my best work um, particularly as a psychologist, I can't do my best work supporting my clients if I'm not keeping on top of the latest thinking, if I'm not researching useful tools and techniques. And so I'm always kind of thinking about what matters and therefore what does a good week look like? Don't get me wrong, I'm, you know, I've got a lot of meetings, I have a lot of stuff going on and, and certainly for most of last year, I was also caring for my mum, who was in her final months um, before she died of, of cancer in November. And oh, sorry to hear that. Thank you. Um, so I have to be really organised, but I always tie it back to what am I trying to achieve here? What matters and what difference can I make to, to the people that I'm working with and, and to the world? Oh. Slightly more straightforward than that is I meditate. So I was in a role that wasn't right for me at one point and, and almost killed myself to try and prove myself in that role. And I burnt out and, and I went to a very, very dark, bad place. And then I had this tiny little glimmer of light. So this is nearly 10 years ago now. I had this tiny little glimmer of light. I had this little voice going, Hayley, you know, you, you're a trained psychologist. You You should be able to kind of, you've got lots of tools and techniques and... Um, and I listened to that. Fortunately, I listened to that voice. And so I started to research. I started to research how I could look after myself as a as a leader who burnt out and how I could get myself out of this this kind of grand canyon of despair, if you like. So, I, I yeah, I started to put my research skills to the test. And one of the things that consistently came up was power of meditation. Mm. Now, I'd never been one for this because in my mind, I was like, isn't it just sitting on a sitting cross-legged booming an army um, <laughs> and i know and that's that's really not me um but i discovered headspace um and so i downloaded the headspace app 
2012, yeah, 2012. <laughs> because Andy Puddicombe, who developed Headspace, got the most soothing voice. So I did guided meditation to learn how to meditate. And then I kind of progressed from Headspace. And then for the last six years or so, I've used Calm. So I subscribe to the Calm app, which you get loads of other, other stuff as well. And without fail, without fail, I do at least five minutes, but normally 10 minutes every morning. First thing, before I look at my social media apps, before I do anything, before I even have my first cup of coffee, I meditate. Mm. I connect with my breathing. I kind of ground myself. And that really helps. And it's something that I, I talk to clients about and, and kind of help them with as well. Mm, that's good. And how are you? I know you mentioned, obviously, your mum passing. How, how, how are you today? And how I'm did you okay. get over the loss of, of, of your mum? I haven't. Um, so some days are better than others. Mm. Um, I think the last week in particular, I've really struggled. I was talking to my sister about this last night. Um, just when you think you're okay, certain things will, you know, it might be a film, it might be a smell, it, it just, you know, just hurt. And I think there's something about feeling feeling your feelings, feeling how you feel, yeah. don't ignore them. And so some days are better than others, but, yeah, I'm still very in the early days mm. of grief because I miss her. Yeah, yes, I, I, I understand that. I lost my dad um, 18 years ago, oh, and sorry. yeah, I was. Thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I was, I think, 15 at the time, and um, mm. even sometimes I'll think about it now. And he, he obviously never, he didn't see me get married. He never met up my my children, so I, I sometimes will like cry. I'm like, oh, because I yeah. I wish he had met my wife. I wish he had met uh, you know my children because the boys are always like, oh, how what was granddad like? So yeah, I, I I understand how you feel, but um, yeah, um, I I will definitely keep you in my prayers and yeah, because thank you. But I, thank I, I, you. Thank... I can hear it in your voice. I can hear it in your voice, and yeah. I think we just have to take the lessons from our loved ones' mm, mm. deaths. So lots of people ask me why I made the leap from a highly paid role into setting up on my own, which is a scary old thing. Yeah. My, my dad died suddenly uh, just before my birthday in 2016, completely unexpected. And then mum was diagnosed with cancer about a month after dad's funeral. Mm. And I said to him, the universe is trying to tell me something here, that you get one life hmm. and you should do what matters to you, what makes you happy. Mm. And isn't it a sad indictment of our culture, of our society, that it's often catastrophic events courage to make that leap and do that thing and and why can't we get into a place where we do that and we don't have to wait for the worst thing to happen before we get that bravery to be ourselves you're right and unfortunately that's where most of us and i'm still in in that as well so but thank you so much for sharing something so personal i I must ask you before we we finish this you you seem to like the color green a lot is there something to it should should we be all changing our wardrobe to green (laughs) (laughs) so so there's two reasons really for that so um green has always been a really important color in my family so it's my mum and dad's favorite color and I think by osmosis, it became one of mine. So I love green and I love purple. So you'll see smatterings of purple as well. But then when I set up my business, um, I did that thing. I, I did all the wrong things, which is for another podcast. Um, I did all the wrong things. So I did 
business plan. I didn't do any of that stuff. No, I fell into the trap that so many of us fall into, which is I want my business cards. Oh, what color is my website going to be? And so I was researching the psychology of color and I was thinking very carefully about what I wanted Halo to be about, what kind of impact I wanted, how I wanted people to feel. Uh, And green, weirdly enough, really resonated with the messaging that I was trying to put out. It's very calming. It's very grounding. Um, There's an element of creativity um, to that. Those are the words that people tend to use when they think about green. Okay. So, yeah, so there's there's two reasons. It's always been a family-oriented colour for my family, um, and there's a psychology behind it as well. All right. No, thanks. You know, I didn't actually know that because my uh, logo is the background to the podcast is green and I was thinking oh maybe I should change it but now that you said it um, no. it's, it's stain yes. <laughs> if Haley says if Dr Lewis says it then yes absolutely yeah. I'm with that but thank you so much this has been a fascinating conversation like I said I could I could talk to you on and on and this has been so good thank you so much for your time today you're welcome